Hello, welcome to Movies Charles Hasn't Seen. My name is Wilson. I'm Crossman. And I'm Charles. Movies Charles Hasn't Seen is a podcast. Crossman, what is our podcast about? So on the show, we uh, discuss movies, usually from history, but generally also movies that we like. Yes. Uh, I think in our new newest iteration of this podcast, we choose movies that we'd like to share with the group. This week, we uh, Charles, you chose the movie Moon. Mm-hmm. From 2008, I believe. 2009. Nine, damn. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Very close. <laughs> tell us about Moon. All right. So in Moon, Sam Rockwell plays a technician on the far side of the moon uh, where they're mining a valuable energy resource. And he's completing or near completing a three-year stint after which he can go home and somebody's going to come up and replace him. But through a series of mishaps, he discovers that he's actually a clone and that there is no going home for him after his three-year stint. He's just going to deteriorate into non-existence uh, once he's done. But through these mishaps, uh, another clone gets woken up with him at the same time, and they devise a plan to get one of them off the moon and back to Earth. And so they manage to execute that plan before the quote-unquote rescue squad comes by to clean things up. And I think that's... Basically it. That's yeah. the bulk of the plot, yeah. Yeah. Um, so this was your selection, uh, Charles, but you had not seen it when you selected it, maintaining the premise of the show yes, um, as well as we can. Uh, I feel like this is one we really should have done for our sci-fi month. That was a bit of an oversight. Uh, but what did you think of it? Do you like Moon? I did enjoy it. Great. Um, I liked the premise a lot. It was very entertaining to watch Sam Rockwell fight with himself mm-hmm. uh, and to slowly discover what was going on and... You know, kind of feel how he was feeling when he discovered that all of his memories were a lie. Um, I, I did feel like I was left wanting more at the end. Yeah. Um, because the scope of the movie is very focused. It's very focused on the, the two clones that are woken up and their immediate struggle. But I wanted to kind of back up a bit and, you know, see what was going on on Earth and like, you know, what the company was up to and why there were thousands of clones stored underground there all at once. Uh, What happened to the original um, Sam? His name is actually also Sam in the movie, which is convenient. What happened to the original Sam? Um, Maybe some sort of like moral conclusion on it because I don't feel like the movie really like conveys that too much beyond like this is really immoral. Um, yeah, so it, it left me wanting more. Really? Okay. That, that's interesting. Because um, it is hyper-focused. Like, it's basically yeah. the Sam Rockwell show featuring Sam Rockwell for all 100 minutes of this movie um, with a little bit of awkward Kevin Spacey voice voicing the robot. <laughs> um, but uh, what do you think of this one, uh, Crossman? When I first watched it, I had a very similar experience. Because okay. I, I watched it probably right after it came out because it had, a, like, a lot of buys. And it seemed up my alley, like generally like sci-fi movies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I made an effort to see it. And um, yeah, I think the performance is obviously amazing. Uh, like it's it's like a well-acted parent trap. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, kinda, I, I felt like my reaction is, is similar to Charles, where I think that the um, the sort of like moral stakes of the movie I, I don't think like play out well enough I think um, actually Sorry to Bother You has a sim- definitely parallels yeah there's yeah. a similar politic but a clearer 
message as to what to do about it, I guess. Like, yeah, like there's I, a I think sorry to bother you is like fairly prescriptive and like. This is a plan of action. Yeah. In, like, organize in this, your workplace. In this yeah. situation, <laughs> this is like what you should do about this. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't think the movie ever gets to that, but. I don't think it's trying to. And I think that's fine. Sorry to bother you by 10, 10 years. So. Yeah. Well, well, I think what's funny is there's there's a so there's very similar situations in Sorry to Bother You, and when the sort of like secret gets out about the company, rather than the company's stock plummeting, which is what happens in this movie, the stocks like shoot up, and (laughs) (laughs) they it becomes like the moment where they like release this sort of like very dark secret about the company and, and all the like investors are like really happy about it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, this company is really clever. This will make us so much money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cause they're like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Great. And, <laughs> and here the, the notion, like what's interesting is the, the notion of like work in this movie and like as a disposable worker, what, what one can do about one situation. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's limited. Um, this was this was only my second viewing of this movie. I, it took me a little while to get around to this one. Like I was aware of it when it came out in two thousand nine or shortly thereafter. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, I just didn't get around to it until a friend recommended it to me, and I saw it a good I don't know four years ago or so. And like this viewing was different for me than the first viewing. I think this is one where like the first and second viewings are pretty drastically different experiences because you kind of see the groundwork that uh, the director is laying. Um, early on, and I think I like my second viewing more. Like I think mm-hmm. it is. I liked it the first time I saw it too, but I think it has improved on um, on rewatch for me because um, I think I like it doesn't have this plan of action that you're talking about or like that a story to bother you would have. But I think I, I like that it really strikes at like the personalness of the alienation of labor, right? Like how it it is you know about that, but it's it's about like. As you become divorced from your work, you know, you become divorced from the self, and it like literalizes that idea by making the main character like not have a self, right? And that the way that you regain that self is by collaboration, right? Like, and and that like it it strikes against you know antagonism that we typically see in sci-fi movies. Like, there isn't really any violence in this movie, right? And like, you don't see the the clones except for like that one moment when they have that weird fight. <laughs> like after that, they basically yeah. just resolve what's going on and work together. And like that feels like what this movie wants people to be doing, right? Like that class consciousness is not just an individual activity, but a class communal activity, and that you do it with other people and you can't do it by yourself. Um, so I, I think I saw more of that mm-hmm. messaging in this viewing of it, um, which I appreciated. Like I thought that that was, that was well done. Well, I, I like. It's very inspired by Alien, where it's just like, just like a bunch of normal like workers, right? And like, it's not like a scientist or like, yeah. And it does like the shitty tech thing, yeah. Yeah, we've talked about in other contexts. Mm -hmm. It does it pretty well though. Like all the um, sets are real. Mm -hmm. Like there's no Mm -hmm. um, like Marvel CGI. Five million dollar budget. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. I did really like the set design in this in this movie. The art design in general. Yeah, apparently it was. um, uh, I was reading on the wiki that it was like a um, a repurposed movie set for a canceled um, Red Dwarf movie. Really? Yeah. (laughs) Are you familiar with Red Dwarf? I'm not. Red Dwarf was kind of like a Hitchhiker's Guide inspired 
serial TV show that's uh, produced by the BBC where it was like this guy um, he's in like a space accident on like a Star Trek like ship yeah um, and he wakes <clears throat> up like a thousand years later because he'd been frozen and everybody else is gone it's just like him doing stuff around the ship and there, there are more characters that will like enter in into the show but it's a comedy show okay it's Futurama all right. Yeah, it's, it's basically it does sound like yeah, it. yeah. Um, but they were gonna like make a movie for that show, and it never happened. But this was okay. like the set for it, and so they like okay. repurposed the set. Well, they did a good job for that. Yeah, yeah. I did uh, not know that. That's interesting. Yeah, but yeah, I like that it was like a combination of sleek and industrial, right? Because mm-hmm. it's got like those white walls and a nice like futuristic font, and it looks pretty clean overall. But it also looks um, very like rugged. So it's like proper for its purpose and it's a nice balance to strike in sci-fi because often you see stuff be like too sleek it looks like a coffee machine everywhere and it's a little (laughs) unbelievable um and i guess i don't mind when it's like super gritty and super dirty so but this is a good like in between as well well it it looks like some schmo's been living there for three years yeah right and like not cleaning stuff up that diligently yeah (laughs) which is kind of what happened right like that's what was going on um, so you like you see a Tennessee Titans poster, you see yeah. coffee stains all over the place, you yeah. know, there's just kind of, you know, clutter. Yeah, and it, it so it feels lived in. Like it feels like a space that someone has used. Yeah, the Martian felt like it took a bit from this movie too. Sure, oh, yeah, I hadn't thought yeah. of that, but you're right. Yeah, like the, uh, the, you know, one guy in space being kind of stranded. Yeah. Yeah. Like that. And the, the Martian's also like very science oriented, which this one felt like, it was intending to be like as realistic as as possible. Yeah, although I mean, in this this movie's not really interested in digging into how the science functions, right? No. Like it like it just opens with this dialogue, like we're farming light now, and like that's how this works. Yeah, yeah, and like <laughs> that, and that's kind of all we really get in terms of like the hard sci-fi angle. Yeah, um, as opposed to March, where we really do learn about like how Matt Damon grows potatoes. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but there, there are elements there where they like. It seems like they bothered to like think about. Why they're there? They're right. Doing. Well, like yeah. global warming is the instigating. Yeah, activity and like, here. Moon rocks like do have helium three in them, and like you <clears> could <throat> potentially use it for fusion. Okay. Yeah. Let's do that. So <laughs> it seems like a good idea. Um, so yeah, no, it's it's harder sci-fi than something like Star Wars, um, but I think this movie is interested in other things. Right. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, for sure. yeah. Sci-fi is not. It's like driving. No. Angle Besides the, the clone mechanic, I guess. But they don't even explain that too much. It's just we usually expect clones to have a short lifespan. Right. Yeah. And that's the one thing that I, I that occurred to me the first time I watched it and also this time. So, like, the Sam that is the newer version is getting launched into Earth at the end of the movie. Yeah. But, like, there's very clear and heavy implications that the lifespan for these clones is, like, three years. Right, so it's like, yeah, so he's, got, he's gonna go to Earth. He's got two and a half years. He's on got, him. Yeah, right, exactly, and then then he's gonna start like dying miserably. It's like okay, like, like that, there's a there's a sadness to that. Yeah, that I think that neither of the clones really discuss. Like like they never raise that explicitly. Um, but well, it, like it, the the second clone seemed to be weirdly naive about what was happening right. to the first clone. Yeah, like he never says like, oh shit, is this what's gonna happen to me in a couple of years? He's just like, oh, that sucks that you're talking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, you seem to be sick, but like, I feel bad for you, so you should be the one to go back to Earth, even though you'll probably already be dead by the but time you you land, right? Like, yeah. So that was kind of strange, right? Right. Uh, so, and it, I think it, it is like it was implied that like their condition like could be treatable, 
Maybe. I, I didn't I don't pick up on that, but maybe you're right. Being okay. mentioned. Okay. Hopefully. I, I felt like I was like, oh. Okay. Maybe that was me. But <laughs> I, I, I felt like there was a moment where there was like, there's potential. Oh, I, like, it's not entirely fatal. I, I admire your optimism. Okay. <laughs> for, for these clones. Um, one of the things I like uh, best about this movie is um, how it does center the, the class conflict, right? Because I think that there are other movies like Alien and to a lesser degree Star Wars that like have this. Cl these class themes in them, um, but that's not the purpose of the movie. Certainly not in Star Wars. A little bit more in Alien, but still like it was. It was a lot really. louder in Aliens. Yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah, and it was. But that movie is still like an action movie before it's anything else, yeah. right? Like it's really about yeah. blowing down aliens in the space station. And that's great. Like that's cool. Aliens is a great movie, um, but like I like that this one like really makes that the purpose of the film. Like that is that that is the through line that is the reason that this movie exists mm -hmm. um, and I like that about it and I think that there aren't that many especially science fiction movies that do that that's what I was like kind of disappointed by the end though like it felt like oh well he should go wake up all the clones and like they should all like work together to, to just mm -hmm. like get back or yeah something. Um, yeah <laughs> maybe yeah right? um, but what I, what I liked about it is that it stays small and it stays personal as well right like that he has an opportunity with his dying moments to like save one guy and like know that he's saving one guy, and like I like that about it that it's, that he's just saying like this is worth it, right? Like this mm -hmm. is a, a small good act that is meaningful and can you know have some some purpose and, and impact on the world instead of just being a cog in the machine, right? Or instead of like having this be about how workers are turned against one another or mm. whatever, like a, or like a firefight at the end with the rescue team that shows up or something like that. Like it's not doing that, it's saying like, the best thing that you can do is to to survive. I did, right. I did like that sort of like the looming timing timer yeah. of the yeah. <clears throat> rescue team adds like an urgency to the movie where it might not otherwise exist. Yeah, there's like literally a timer yeah. that you see in yeah. like numerous shots in and, the back half. And then I also like that that doesn't really pay off. Like he's able to leave with like, Plenty of time. Like, <laughs> it's like in a normal sci-fi movie, it takes be, down. Yeah, be like if the seconds before they <laughs> their their craft is landing, you better go. <laughs> yeah, it's like actually, I got a good like twenty minutes. Actually, that that explicitly happens in the third Alien movie. Oh yeah, where they like call a rescue team, and there's like the counts like right down at the end of the movie. It's like <laughs> within seconds of yeah. the rescue team arriving. Yeah. Okay, I, I did yeah. find it kind of amusing that they never tried to sugarcoat the rescue team. Like you immediately know what's up with the rescue team, and they yeah. don't try to make it a twist or anything. Like I mean, most of the audience is not going to be tricked by that, but like yeah. neither were neither were the clones. I think. Yeah, and I like the way that this movie handles its reveals in general, right? Like that there isn't really a moment where, like, the audience finds out that they're clones, right? Like you kind of get bits and pieces and you put it together and like there's a dawning realization and then it's confirmed and yeah. the confirmation isn't treated as like a surprise it's treated as as just conf again confirming the thing that we already know yeah it's and, like oh now the characters finally get it <laughs> right and, th and that and in that way it centers the characters right so it doesn't become about the effect of the information on the audience it becomes mm -hmm. the effect of the information on the character and yeah. we can and the character's reactions affect on the audience. Yeah, so it's the opposite of whatever J.J. Abrams does. It, once again, like this is just me <laughs> beating up on J.J. Abrams. <laughs> yes, exactly that. Um, but I think it does that well. It reminded me of... Um, well, the J.J. Abrams version of this movie would be so focused on like the vault of clones. Yeah. Like 
That would be like the overriding thing. Well, about no, it movie. would end with you discovering that that they were yeah. clones or something. They would have some like weird timeline thing throughout the whole movie yeah. between the two clones or something. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it would. Yeah, but then it, it would, would mean nothing. Yes, yeah, yeah, you are precisely correct. It reminded <laughs> there was a book called um, "Never Let Me Go" that I think was made into a movie a few years ago. Has anybody read this? It was very very good, and it also features a clone plot. And the in that book and movie the idea is that the clones are being raised so that we can harvest their organs and use them on people and it, oh like the island okay sure oh, it was yeah. a jessica biel movie called the island and uh, ewan mcgregor yeah <laughs> oh okay um, it was really bad i believe it was you. a michael bay production um, great so you know immediately. i think michael yeah. clark duncan's in it too maybe i don't remember it too uh, well yeah it's really bad okay but it's it, based on like a philip k dick book oh that's right no now i do remember this thing yeah and yeah i didn't watch it and i don't plan to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but in Never Let Me Go, it's told in the first person from the perspective of one of these clones. And it's just like a third of the way through the book, they're kind of like, oh, yeah, we're clones. And that's why our lives are so weird. And like, it's not really treated like a reveal. It's just like this sad thing that the audience gradually figures out. And I think that um, Moon makes a similar move where it's yeah. like not a big moment. It's just like, oh, yeah, we don't have actual lives. Well, I, I did enjoy that they made it like a slight twist mm -hmm. um but they don't make the reveal like that big telegraph moment with like a loud soundtrack or something like that that a lot of movies might do because right. they have him get into the crash and it's like really loud and you don't know if he's going to survive or not mm -hmm. they have then they show the other clone waking up in the medical bay right but then you think that that's just him being having been right. recovered and healed up and it's not yeah, uh, and and he gets up and starts working, but then it's really trippy when he goes out to the crash site and finds the guy's body still there. Right? Yeah, you're right. That is a bit of like a moment. Yeah, so you yeah. you get the twist revealed there, but it's just funny that the character just doesn't seem to register that this guy who looks identical to him is there. Yeah, they just kind of keep going about their business for yeah, a while. Yeah, he doesn't seem funny. alarmed by this, which is kind of strange. There's just like a little bit interested, I guess. Like yeah. They want to see what this is. Um, and I like that there's a little bit of like this which one is the real Sam kind of dynamic for a little bit after they meet one another and then the answer is like neither of them, neither is, of them yeah. is the real Sam. Mm -hmm. Like they're both they're both fake. Um, so I like that about the movie too. Like, yeah, one thing I was curious about though was they have the video transmission with the actual like the real-time video transmission with the wife at the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's revealed that the real Sam is there with her, which was like really trippy. Yeah. Or presumably the real Sam. I, I guess it was, to me, I read that as more ambiguous, but maybe it isn't. Because like, when he's talking to his daughter, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she goes like, she calls for her father. And you hear a voice off screen. Right, which I think implies that the real Sam is back with his family. And it makes me wonder if the real Sam ever did a three-year stint or if they had some sort of program where they're like we can scan your dna we'll pay you a lot of money and then your clones will work off on the moon yeah or they never told him at all maybe yeah or they they maybe siphoned it off him, the, yeah an employee at this company and they steal his, uh, his genetic material yeah. so yeah i guess i read it as ambiguous whether or not that the voice off screen belongs to the actual original the sam prime it's, it feels like this one would be like a black mirror episode now like Sure. You're gonna make this now. That's what I was thinking, like the whole way through. Like a Black Mirror episode. Yeah, I was like, this feels exactly like a slightly longer Black Mirror. It's, it's even kind of about the quality of Black Mirror. So yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's in a good fair. way, I would say. Yeah, um, but it's got a lot of the same themes because a lot of Black Mirror consists of different ways that we can create copies of people and 
sort of convince ourselves that they don't have to be treated like people so mm -hmm. that we can exploit them however we want. That's a, a common theme that runs through Black Mirror. Yeah. Um, and that's essentially what they're doing here. Yeah, the, uh, you're, you're correct. I, I haven't seen enough Black Mirror to have an opinion on that, but I've seen, you know, screenshots. So, yeah, yeah. in terms of the look of it, it is it's similar. Like, they must have a pretty similar budget, which I think speaks to how much money Black Mirror gets per episode. This, this is a feature-length film. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm sure they're stretching money in ways that we're not seeing. Yeah, probably. yeah. And yeah. I, th I think it's gotten more and more popular, so the budget's gotten bigger. The yeah. early few episodes were were much lower budget, and they're they're making do with a lot more. Well, they, they do cover things like what this movie does, where it's like it's kind of like a bottle. Yeah, 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 and like a lot of their tech, quote unquote, is just like a UI on a screen, and that's very easy to simulate. Yeah, or the the robot, like the just the emoji faces, which I really liked. Yes, about yeah. the robot, I thought that was funny. Yes, like when he's like. When he's really sad, the robot shows like the cry face. Yeah, <laughs> they they, they <laughs> did give like, Rudy to make him food. They gave him a lot of personality just for having a simple emoticon face. Yeah. Although let's talk about Gertie for a second because I think when you first start watching this movie, the instinct is to see Gertie as like a Hal figure. Yeah. And he's not right. Well, like that's it, what we're programmed to believe. Right, and and, and I like that the movie like uses that. Like it uses yeah. our knowledge of two thousand one. To like set us up for Gertie being helpful, <laughs> like actually helpful. Yeah. It was funny when um, he was like trying to type in the password, or there are some moments where the claw arm would like come up behind yeah. him, and you're like, oh no, like he's about to do something. And then <laughs> it just gives him a hand, or like it gives him like a soft tap on the shoulder. Right, so this is the password. Yeah, so I, I, I like that. I like it, like. That liberation can come from just basic human decency, even if the human decency is a robot in this case. Yeah, but. I was a little confused by the robot being so helpful because you think it'd be very easy for the company to program it to have a failsafe for if this kind of thing happened and right. not go against the company's best interests, <clears throat> right? Mm -hmm. Are they saying like companies are both cruel and incompetent or something? I think that they're saying this company this company doesn't give a shit, right? Like you, you can see like how frequently they're cutting corners here and like how sure. much they're looking to like not spend money and like so of course this kind of thing happens we see that in the, the real world all the time right like that's why the stuff he's watching on tv is like mary tyler moore reruns and bewitched and stuff. like they yeah, can't even like get them it's like 80 80 like, right like yeah. they can't even get them recent uh recent media to entertain himself with over the course of yeah. three years although it makes me wonder if it would have been cheaper to just automate the facility robotically since the ai clearly is like very capable right no, no, then there's no movie well yeah i <laughs> yeah. know but like you know you yeah. could you could have the movie and have there not be an ai assistant that was that well, capable and then you don't have this problem right i remember reading this article this week actually that like a year or so ago there's like a big announcement that there was like this robot hotel in japan and like you get checked in by a robot, and like your luggage gets brought up to the room by a robot. And, okay. Like, they have like Roomba like cleaning. <laughs> for some and, reason, when you said robot hotel, I was thinking for a split second a hotel for robots. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, why do they need that? Uh, <laughs> and apparently, like kind of recently, they had to fire a bunch of their robots because like the robots like didn't do enough. Like yeah. it turns out that like. The concierge robots like couldn't bring the bags up to every room, and like, okay, so what they do? The Roombas like didn't do a very good job of like <laughs> uh, cleaning everything because they can only <laughs> clean the floor and right, and not uh, any higher surfaces. Right, yeah. So they hired a bunch of people. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's what happened in this 
like future scenario that like yeah, maybe they gave the, him a shot. The robot tech just wasn't quite there to do yeah, it. Was the, just easier the just to like make a bunch of clones and to like make better robots. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Shitty clones are better than good robots. Yeah, yeah. And that happened in Star Wars too, the prequels. That's true. <laughs> yes, it is. They made a whole war out of it. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, I, that that's an interesting parallel with the real world. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, Gertie, though, I, like surprising amount of humor for such like a flat character. Yeah. Well, and, and yeah. they, they, they the interactions against, are pretty funny. Well, it plays yeah. against yeah. the dynamism of Sam Rockwell, right? Because he's, yeah. he's doing so much in this movie, right? Yeah. Like, there's a, such a range of character and such a range of reaction and emotion for this guy. To, but to just have like this affectless, you know, companion yeah. to play off is like it's a very natural, like setup, straight man kind of role, um, and and it's effective here. And it, it is Kevin Spacey, and like you know, we don't like Kevin Spacey anymore, correctly. Um, but he's funny. Kevin Spacey is really a comedian before anything yeah. else. I didn't actually recognize his voice, even though I saw his name in like the pre-movie yeah, yeah. credits. I didn't recognize his voice. It is modulated yeah. a bit, yeah. and it's very flat. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I and, guess and, I'm used to his voice having a southern accent. Yeah. Yeah. There's that. And what he, I mean, he has all those videos floating around of him doing impressions of dozens of people. Like that's just one of his his parlor tricks. Yeah. yeah. Um. So for him to Change his voice suddenly, you don't recognize him immediately. Is probably not not that challenging. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, yeah I feel like true. Interstellar kind of picked up on that oh, interaction yeah. too, because they had mm. their like. Uh, I forget what the robots were called. Yeah, I forget what they're called, but they they're also funny in a similar way. Is it like, no, I'm thinking something else. Don't worry yeah. about it. Yeah, I forget those names. Well, I think we we see comedy really for robots throughout. Um, yeah, like Hitchhiker's Guide is probably yeah. Lost in Space does it. Like Star Wars certainly yeah. does it, right? Like these these things are it's a common trope, I think. Um, yeah, right. But it, it it works here in that like the intersection with like the evil robot trope here, and like your expectations of this being a Hal type character. Yeah, um, I think or a Terminator, whatever. <laughs> like, yeah. I think that it, in that way it it departs. Um, this was. Directed by Duncan Jones, um, I believe it was his first feature. It is, yeah. Yeah, um, he gets a story credit, but not a writing credit, <laughs> um, which I think is interesting. And I don't know exactly how that played out. Uh, he would, of course, go on to direct the Warcraft movie, yeah. <laughs> which evidently wasn't great. Well done. Yes. Although it made a huge amount of money. Did it? It was a giant. In smash. China, I yeah. think. China was like that broke like all their records for like box office. That is stunning. Yeah, and right. it still I think it still made its money back in the U.S. too. It must have been expensive. It looked expensive. Yeah, it was like a two hundred million dollar film. Yeah, it's a lot more than the five that they spent on Moon. I never saw work. I don't, did you? See I didn't see it. No. Okay. I mean, it looks awful. Yeah, that's what yeah. I thought. I didn't bother seeing it. I'm I mean, perplexed I, that it could have made its money back yeah. even in America. Yeah, like and I played the a good number of those Warcraft games on plenty of WoW and like. We do not need a cinematic version of that story. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not. It doesn't justify that at all. Like it's just the the content is not there. He definitely invent a lot of new things. And my understanding was that he tracked pretty closely with what the games were, like sure. the early RTSs. Yeah, he's like one of many directors that's kind of been like made one thing that like got like made some waves and they got picked up and yeah. So he did know. this. He did a movie called Source Code. I loved Source Code. Same guy. Source Code was. I didn't know that. Not yep. bad. Yeah. Yeah. Same guy. So he did a. He, he, I think he, you know, did more than like a Colin Trevorrow type of dude who made one movie that was like a medium hit, 
on a low budget, and then it's like, here's Jurassic Park. <laughs> yeah, or uh, Gareth Reynolds, or uh, yeah, what did he what did he end up picking up? Uh, Godzilla and oh, one yeah. of the Star Wars films. Although I think he got booted from it. Yes, he was gonna do Rogue One, I think, and then oh, oh yeah, you're right. I think that yeah, they, like sounds familiar. Kicked him off that project, but he did Godzilla. Right. Well, and uh, it's well, it's interesting. I could be wrong about that. That, well, that we have. Like so many examples in recent history of this happening, right? Like, yeah. or uh, Looper was the same too, right? Who? Yeah. Did Ryan Johnson? Ryan do Looper, Johnson yeah. did Looper. I um, mean, but he also did Brick before that. And right. He, Brewery, he had, it's like this kind of like successful, one or like two. thoughtful, like indie piece, and then they get given these like sci-fi epics. Right, but it only happens for men, right? So you oh see, yeah, for right? sure. <laughs> so yeah. you you see like Lynn Ramsey like make you know how many great movies throughout her career, and yeah. and she's still just like can't even get a. Any Oscar attention, despite um, making one of the best movies that came out last year. Or you see, like, um, who's the woman that did Jennifer's Body and The Invitation? Uh, well, she just had a film come out, Destroyer. Right, but yeah. like, that's not, you know, Star Wars. <laughs> it's, no, it's, no, it's not it's a not Marvel that. movie, right? Like, the, the examples of that happening are like Patty Jenkins and. But that's it. That's, it. <laughs> right? like, that's that's what we got. Um, and so it's sometimes it works out, and we do get a Ryan Johnson who's phenomenally talented and gets his giant budget and his giant franchise and makes the best one in the franchise. But sometimes we get Colin, you know, I can't even pronounce his last name, Trevero. Trevero. And he makes, you know, the garbage, um, another garbage Jurassic Park movie. I said Gareth Reynolds. It's actually Gareth Edwards, Edwards. who yeah. got Monsters and then directed Rogue One and Godzilla. He did direct Rogue One. Yeah. Yeah, Rogue One wasn't good, right? Like, you could tell that it was made by a guy who hadn't handled a giant budget and a giant set before. Well, he handled Godzilla before it. <laughs> okay, well, maybe that one was good either. But that's Which, it, had like, some, it had some good action scenes in the second half, but that doesn't make a whole movie. No. For Rogue One? Yeah, because it like doesn't connect to anything else that happened in that movie. And yeah. it's a, like, and we have directors like Lynn Ramsey who have shown us like they know exactly what they're doing and exactly how to construct an effective action movie or whatever, and still can't get not a well-earned Oscar nomination. Still can't get the giant budget. Still can't get the big, the big franchise. Um, it's a it's one of the clearest examples of, of sexism in in the film industry, I think, and it happens because mm-hmm. directors are less visible than than actors. Yeah, yeah, that's a bummer. Yeah, yeah, I I think it, it plays into like. Sort of like genius theory to well, a tour like, theory. Yeah, yeah. Well, no. Well, I don't. Like, no. <laughs> sure, but like the I, I think the genius thing is like a very like male centric myth. Where if we just like, oh, this person like made this amazing thing, mm-hmm. so we can pick them out of obscurity and to make them do this like other more amazing thing. And yeah, I feel like that's a very like male oriented myth. It Having is. worked in tech, it's like all over all over that where it's just like the Zuckerbergs of the world are like mm-hmm. oh they're so smart and yeah now we have another yeah. billionaire running for president applying the same <laughs> the same idea yeah right? yeah so yeah. so I think it's this odd focus on like small successes and not like building a portfolio of, like uh, things practicing. that are good yeah yeah, yeah exactly. exactly it's probably cheaper for the theaters or the movie production companies too because you can like pick if you pick someone out of obscurity you're gonna say like, okay, we'll give you like two million dollars versus yeah. where for like, you know, one like Tony Scott. If we like pick him 
Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, we have to pay Tony Scott we have to, to give him some money. Or, sorry, Tony's dead. Ridley. Yeah, I know you meant. Yeah. Ridley. <laughs> yeah, like if we needed Ridley to direct this movie, it would cost us like 30 to $60 million, plus like a percentage of the box up. And like, he has an, an actual agent. Yeah, whereas we can grab yeah. these nobodies and maybe they make a really good movie and pay them very little, probably. Yeah, it's, right. Yeah. It's, I think that, that is still partially influenced by yeah. our tour theory because it worked for them, right? Like you, you look at Francois Truffaut. And it's like, he actually did the thing where it's like the first movie is a giant, like, cinema-changing hit. Like, and, and wins a bunch of awards, like, immediately. Yeah. Right? And, and this idea that he is the grand genius that comes along and has all the answers and the vision. and like he What, what did he make? He made The 400 Blows, um, okay. which is, a, like, one of the two, like, that and Breathless are, like, the two major movies in the French New Wave. Um, and uh, Francois Truffaut is famous because he was one of the more vicious film critics <laughs> um, prior to becoming a filmmaker. And so... These people that would come along and say things like, oh, you think all these movies are garbage? Why don't you go make your movie? Well, he actually did it. And then, like, <laughs> took home the, the highest prize at Cannes here. <laughs> it's oh, man. like, okay, fine. Um, so, like, you have that giant success story with this theory being applied. Or it's like, yes, the one guy comes along and has all of the ideas about how this should function. And here, it, it works, mm-hmm. right? But that's, of course, not really how film functions, certainly not in 2019 anymore. It's like it's, it's a necessarily collaborative art. Uh, like I remember I was reading an article in, I think it was in the New York Times, about Ryan Coogler, um, who directed the first Creed movie, he directed Fruitvale Station, and then obviously uh, Black Panther, and it was all about all of the people that he works with. It was all about how many sources of inspiration that he draws from and how well he knows them and how good he is at like drawing people in to contribute to the larger idea. Right? Like it's like the antithesis of auteur theory. And look at that, he's making one great movie after another. And so I think that we're starting to hopefully see some pushback. And like the next step would be to have you know women direct movies that get big budgets and big franchises. And, yeah. yeah, hopefully Wonder Woman's success brings more of that. I would hope so. Um, that was a good two or three years ago now. And I don't know if we've seen much since then. Right? So that, That's true. That, is a, that is a shame. Um, but yeah, she's it, directing. Patty Jenkins is directing the sequel, though, right? The Wonder he, Woman sequel. I think that Gal Gadot insisted on it. Okay. They said like, if you want me to come back, you have to have her direct it. I, I, I might be misremembering that, but that's what I recall. So you know, to her credit, um, she she did do that. Uh, but yeah, this movie I think is another example of that, right? Like he made the one good movie, and then he gets. His enough infinity money to make his dream project, and lo and behold, maybe it's not the best idea. <laughs> Made a lot of money for a studio. Yeah, eventually, uh, they can make another. That's what one. they really want. Yeah, it, of course, that's a business. It's there to make money. He has a comic book movie in the works right now too. But what comic? Um, one of the like 2080 characters. So 2000. What? What is what? that? That's where like Judge Dredd comes from. Oh, okay. Oh. The, yeah, Neat. So, like one. It's not in that same universe, or I don't, I don't even, I don't know enough about it. But there's a character from like 2080 that he's apparently working on a film for. Okay, yeah. yeah. I mean, he seems like a huge nerd, right? Because he made <laughs> he made this movie, which is like a pretty nerdy movie. He went and made the freaking Warcraft movie, yeah. and now apparently a deep cut comic book movie. He's David Bowie's son. I did um, not know that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. He, uh, yeah, I saw an interview with him, and he was like, he kept saying my dad, and I was like, yeah, you should say it's like. Bowie. <laughs> like, 
because he talks about being on like a film set yeah. with his dad. Right. You want to be that guy, right? Who's name <laughs> yeah. dropping your dad all the time. Yeah. Yeah. What's the right way to do that? But like the audience, <laughs> like for the audience's sake, like someone should say that. Like, well, who by is, the way, your that's dad up to is, the interviewer to do. You can't yeah. leave it to him, David right. Bowie. I agree. Like, cause what is he supposed to? Do? He doesn't think of his dad as David Bowie, right? He thinks of his dad as his dad. I would think. Uh, yeah, I'm sure he has some self-awareness, but yeah. I've, yeah I've uh, apparently, he like I read a bit of his bio. He like went. He, his mother is American. He went to school in the states. He was pursuing like a um, a philosophy doctorate, and then decided that he like didn't want to do that, and then yeah. went to film school in London. And because he has infinity money, because his dad is David Bowie. Yeah, but I think. Uh, like coming out of like film school in London, I think you have like a lot more opportunity as like a filmmaker. Whereas like here, you need to like, like because they have government funding, like you can get attached to like interesting projects. So, mm-hmm. like, well, and they don't need to make a billion dollars, right? Like literally exactly. a billion dollars. Like it's okay for your movie to just kind of. Be and a there's movie. a system set up where you can like get a set from a, you know a shitty from, old BBC yeah, from, yeah, exactly. movie. Yeah, true. So. True. Like it's set up for more success, it seems like. Yeah, and oh, and it uh, allows would, for like small filmmaking, which is like what this is. Yeah, and yeah. I, I bet it is also set up for like more. It, I, I, I don't want to say interesting because that sounds you know trivializing, but like experimental filmmaking, right? Like this movie is could be made by a studio, right? Like and just yeah. like. I think it'd be hard to be like an action film, right? Or even something like Attack the Block, which we watched earlier. Like I think that movie might not exactly survive in the way that it did going through the the American system. Yeah, and what a remarkable revelation that film is for like the the actors and the director, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or something like Fish Tank, or you know, like any of those kind of British realist movies that we've seen. Or Alien, as we said earlier, which was again like a small film. It was only possible in the like the english system right it's not the type of story you tell when you're always just trying to make a giant movie right right that's something that we're kind of missing these days i don't feel like we get this kind of movie as often even since 2009 yeah like and that's um i think a common critique of modern cinema that we've lost the middle class of movies right yeah that you have like super super cheap movies and like that's why we've seen like kind of a rise in of good horror because they're not that expensive to make yeah and like the giant giant films right so it becomes like all pole no tent like that's yeah but you i guess you could say that a lot of the like types of production that would go into a film of this scale have been going over to tv instead that's fair yeah Yeah. like yeah i think you you see bigger stars on tv now like yeah that chris pine has a tnt show out now and like he's a movie star like that yeah, has been in, in big or giant franchises. We're talking offline about True Detective. Yeah, another yeah. good example on multiple accounts, right? Yeah. yeah, or I feel like we talked about Black Mirror earlier, and that fills mm-hmm. in this type of conceptual like storytelling, right? And you kind of only need that hour to to explore the theme and tell the story, right? And you know, Black Mirror has been getting more and more like famous stars to join its cast as well. Yeah, yeah. It's also just, in English production. Yeah, too. Ooh. So. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, uh, sorry, I lost what I was gonna say. Okay. But but yeah, like you know, there seems to be a lot more creativity in that system because there's space for like smaller things. Yeah, yeah, I think they're more yeah. willing to take risks on TV these days. As That's well. what I was meant to. Yeah, okay. Talk about. The, the it's the risk factor. The movies are just like so risky because they're so expensive, and like the studios just don't want to 
lose money on it. So they'd rather like, you know, make exactly what the audience wants what they and make a lot the, of money the on it. And, yeah. It's depressing so, to see, right? Because like you go to any movie theater now and the posters all in a row are fucking Toy Story 4, Lion King remake, Dumbo remake. Yeah. And like, I don't want to see any of that. Yeah, but it's like it's it's really just like a, a question of like risk uh, in in the investment that you're making, right? Yeah. Like if you already have a good thing, you're just gonna like keep putting money into that, and it plays into the the sexism of the theaters because they men are seen as less risky. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, because they, yeah. Well, and it, like we're fortunate because we live in a large city, so if we do want to see the mid what mid-level small releases there are in a theater we can right like because there were so many that came out this year right like there were yeah. a lot of medium level movies that were like medium budget movies that were great and got attention and we were able to see yeah but if you go talk to people about them they're just like i don't even know what the fuck you're talking about right <laughs> like, and that's what heard we, we also live in a bubble right like if i go up to somebody and, and want to talk about yeah leave no trace or whatever like that is going to be a, a short conversation a lot of the time <laughs> yeah <laughs> so yeah um, in any case, uh, do we have any uh, any closing thoughts on Moon? We've strayed from the subject matter of the movie itself quite a bit um, to, for where, where the movie fits in largely. But uh, anything about the actual film that we haven't touched on? Um, I, I like I like the film a lot. Yeah. I, um, I think if it were made more recently, it might have like a clearer outcome, a la um, maybe. Sorry, Sorry to bother, bother you. you. Yeah, maybe. I, I think there's been, like, at the time, like, the sort of class politic was not as much of an open conversation. So the fact that it even, like, starts to go there is probably admirable. Yeah. Well, and um, that, that we can make that conversation is, I think, evidence of a very recent shift left in the Overton window. Yeah. Right? That, like, that we see this movie, which really does have a pretty clear class politic to it. And say like, yeah, this could easily go further for made today, which I think is correct, mm -hmm. um, but speaks to an encouraging move in where our politics are. I wonder though if like how much the class politics are just accidental, where they just like had inspiration from Alien, where it's just like more interesting to have like just a working guy than like a smart no, scientist in the film. Yeah, no, it feels so, very purposeful to me. It seems pretty clear that they're yeah. trying to like. Yeah. portray the company as being very like uncaring of its workers yeah yeah like so much so that they're not even willing to talk to them yeah right and yeah. like that it's literally dehumanizing them right like literally treating them like replaceable cogs in the machine as evidenced by the actual replacement of each one yeah, yeah. For sure. yeah to me that feels like a like a very very critical and central to what this movie is about yeah and, and what jones is trying to say here yeah and what were you, Charles? Any, any last thoughts? Uh, I was wondering, I couldn't quite make out what was on the radio when he was flying toward Earth at the very end of the movie. I heard, like, a word about clones, but... Yeah, there's, like, a story that, like, breaks, and it's like, oh, this moon company has been using clones for work, and, like, their stock price, like, plunges. Right. Okay. Which is, I didn't remember hearing anything about stock prices or anything like that. Yeah, I think that is what happens, um, which is, you know, not what happens in Sorry to Bother You. So is it meant yeah, to the have the radio trans transmissions be, like, from the future after the clone lands yeah. on Earth? Yeah, I think that's the implication, right, is that we're hearing the, the very near future. Okay. Yeah, so, he, he, so he must, like, get to Earth and, like, find a journalist somewhere and say, yeah. this stuff is happening. Yeah. Yeah, which is... <laughs> Again, exactly what happens to Sorry About You, but the reaction is the complete opposite. Like, yeah. He, like, seeks out a journalist, and he's like, 
or he goes on TV and, yeah. and like humiliates himself on TV. Yeah, so he can like, have a few minutes to say his thing. Yeah. Um, hey, si- sounds like 15 million merits, right? Yeah, exactly like that, <laughs> actually. Um, and then he, The Black Mirror episode. Right. Yeah, and then he... Um, it doesn't work. Yeah, the, opposite happens, work. the company gets like rewarded for it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so um, I think that does speak to like the, I don't know, West Wing era politic of... Or instinct in uh, the left at that time. Yeah, I think it also means that like we are starting to have like even the language for something like this. Yeah, before we'd be talking about it probably like very differently. Mm-hmm. Like and now it's like oh yeah, like the class consciousness has been raised very significantly. Yeah, yeah. So ten years is a long time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, I like this movie too. I think it's super good. Everybody should watch it. And it's on Netflix. We didn't mention that at the front of the episode. Which nice and easy to see. Yeah. But yeah, go. It's, For once, it's on there. <laughs> it's, it's on Netflix. It's 100 minutes. Go check it out. Um, but we'll be back in a moment with Things We've Seen. Welcome back. And we're here for Things We've Seen, where we go over other things that we've seen from outside the podcast recently. Um, recently, I saw The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which is readily available yeah. on Netflix. I watched this as well. I liked it. Yeah. Was that also your pick? No, I was going to talk about something else. <laughs> okay, but we, I, we, can, we, both, we can both chat about, about it. it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I did quite enjoy it. I, I don't think I would put it as high as Fargo or The Big Lebowski. That's a um, high bar to clear. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, I, I did enjoy it. Um, they're all very bleak stories. I mean, we've been comparing a Black Mirror a lot today, but I found it funny when someone online said it was like a Western Black Mirror. And <laughs> yeah, it's not it really quite is. the same thing. So it's, it doesn't explore the same ideas, but it has that same feeling of like despair and hopelessness a lot of the time that was like going through all the little mini stories. Yeah, so I mean, so that we should explain the setup of yeah, uh, best yeah. So it's six it. different short stories set in the West, mm-hmm. uh, and they cover. A pretty wide variety of topics. So, like, there's one about a gunslinger who gets beat uh, when he's too cocky, uh, a thief who tries to get out of being uh, hanged, but he gets hanged anyway. Um, the what was the next one after that? Was it the uh, some guy has uh, an amputee as a as an act, but decides that a chicken would be an easier act, so he throws away <laughs> throws the leaves on the side of the road or whatever. Or throws he, him into a river. Yeah, that's right. He throws it him is implied river. that he's thrown into a river. You're right. Yeah, yeah. That's um, <laughs> There was a guy who's digging for gold, yeah, the and the guy shoots way. him. What? The, yeah, the panning, Tom Waits. Yeah, the yeah. for gold guy. There's yeah. a guy who's digging for gold, and someone else creeps up and tries to shoot him for it, but he pretends that he's dead and keeps his gold. Yeah. Um, there is, I guess the next one was hard to explain, the, the girl who went on the... That was the darkest The carriage one ride. That was yeah. my yeah, favorite she, It was like she, the Oregon Trail. That was messed up. She goes on a carriage ride. It's the Oregon Trail. And, yeah, and... Um, like literally to to Oregon, and um, she like falls in love with uh, a guy oh, who's Rampers. there and, yeah. and helping her out. Um, but then they get she gets ambushed by natives, and uh, the guy who's helping her tells her that if he gets killed, she has to shoot herself because it's gonna be bad for her if she gets caught. And um, he ends up having to pretend to be dead, so she shoots herself, but he's actually okay, and it's a terrible irony. Yeah. Um, was that five of them? So I think the last one is yeah. they're all in a carriage, and they share some stories, yeah. and it's probably them going to the afterlife. Yeah, and maybe hell. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, which one was your favorite? Uh, <laughs> see... 
I like the ending of the carriage one a lot. Yeah. Um, the the girl one, mm-hmm. um, but I did feel like the bulk of it dragged on a little bit. Like it the, it got a little repetitive in the middle of it. I was wondering where it was going, um, but I like the ending enough that I might pick that one. Yeah, for me, it's the Oregon Trail one, definitely. I mean, that's what I meant the the Oregon Trail one. Oh, okay, then we are in agreement. Yeah, yeah, that's that what that's the, what the covered wagon one. Yeah, yeah, that's the darkest one. I like the the gold. One. The Tom Waits one. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> that one is this just like Tom Waits putting on a master class in acting. Yeah. It was okay. the only one with a happy ending. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think what I liked most about this, well, there's a lot of things I liked about it, but one of the things I liked was it showed just how well the cones understand the genre, mm-hmm. right? Because there's like, Every kind of Western here, right? Because like they have they, singing they cowboys. They put every trope in there. They have like the the romance Western with the Oregon Trail one. They have like acid Westerns when they go on this journey into hell. Like they <laughs> like like pick your Western genre and it acid is, Westerns a thing? Yeah, yeah. I've <laughs> never heard of this. It gets weird. Uh, <laughs> so yes, it is a thing. Um, it's so like they have all of these different genres, and not only are they able to execute them. In a way that like represents that subgenre well, but they're also able to execute them and understand the language of them so well that they can critique them at the same time mm-hmm. and connect them all to each other to, to, to like deliver a unifying message at the end of the movie if, with these six disparate stories, like doing very different things with different actors. And like to me, that just speaks to the expertise of these two in a way that like few other movies can. Like that, that they have such control over what they're doing here and like such clarity of purpose. Yeah, in this movie that has a lot going on in it. <laughs> well, what I wonder is how you would tie the overall movie as a whole together and all six stories, right? Because they seem to cover very different, like, topics, right? Like, I, I read somewhere that, I mean, they all deal with death in some way or the mm-hmm. other, but, like, they deal with a diverse enough range of death that doesn't feel quite as tied together, right? I think it's, it's I, don't, I didn't read it as necessarily about death. I think that all that being in there was... It's hard to talk about Westerns without talking about death, right? Like, it's yeah. a dangerous time. So I don't think that that's what's going on. To me, I think it's explicitly stated in that last story, where they talk about how the stories that we consume and produce and absorb do affect you, right? Mm-hmm. This isn't stuff that is just going to wash over you and that you can take in as, as little morsels, as little bite-sized beats and, and, and walk away, that they, they have an effect on you. And that if you try to ignore that, that means that they have an unconscious effect on you, which is even worse. And I think that that's okay. what this is about. It's like, here is the er-American genre, right? Like, nothing is, no court category of story is more American than the Western. Yeah. And here it is being told in as many different ways as you can possibly tell it, right? And if you think that you can just take all these stories one after another after another and, like, just walk away and, like, not think about what's going on anymore, you have another thing coming. Right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what it's about. It's about how narrative matters. It's about how stories matter. Mm-hmm. And I like that a lot about it. And it seemed like a very Cohn's brother kind of message to send. I wonder what kind of effect I got from having seen these, though. And, and, and it, it can be hard to articulate that. But what's yeah. important is to think about it. Yeah. Right? To not I mean, to I, say, I can definitely see how... Westerns or these kinds of stories would affect someone, right? But I'm mm-hmm. wondering how this specific one would. Because, like, Westerns in general, they, they affect your perception of, like, history, for sure. example. And that's a very important thing. Or, like, you know, how we got to where we are today and right. different, like, attitudes or how you perceive masculinity or things like that. Um, but I don't know how necessarily the Ballad of Buster Scruggs specifically, 
like left me. Yeah. Well, I can tell you what, how, what I thought about at least our favorite story and like why it was my favorite one is yeah. that like she's presented with these two figures of masculinity, right? Like mm -hmm. she has like kind of this more modern man that we see in like the guy that she actually likes who's like sensitive and like doesn't really want to shoot the dog that he's supposed to shoot and like he doesn't really want to be a cowboy anymore and he's ready to settle down and like be nurturing and caring. And mm -hmm. we have this other kind of classical model of masculinity where he's gruff and he is you know, the silent type and he knows how to do all the, the cowboy shit that he's supposed to do. And he's the one that's going to go shoot all the Indians, right? Like when, yeah. when the Indians show up. And what happens at the end is that she ends up dead anyway, right? Like it, these tropes can't save you, mm -hmm. right? Like these, these models of masculinity are not your salvation, right? Mm -hmm. Like there has to be some other thing, right? And I think that you can, you can draw out those little messages from a lot of the stories here. I like her inept brother too. <laughs> yeah, that that sucks. <laughs> Yeah. It was funny. It's funny when he dies. Like, like immediately. He just immediately <laughs> died. Yeah. Yeah. It's not long for, yeah. for that story. But yeah, there's another one, right? Like you can't depend on the guys that you find. You can't depend on your, your family members. Like these, these large archetypes of masculinity are not useful, right? That they will not save you. And that, I, I, again, very Cohen's Brothers, but I think very true um, and, and definitely part of the story here. Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, very enjoyable, highly recommended, very easy to watch because it's right there on Netflix. Yeah, movie's great. Another Brendan Gleeson appearance. Yeah. Yes, and the, at the, right at the end. Like always, there. always strong. Always, always a pleasure, always a pleasure. Yeah. Um, what did you see, Crossman? Anything good? Yeah, I saw um, the Melissa McCarthy movie, Will You, or I think it's called Will You Ever Forgive Me? I think that's right. Yeah. Or is it um, How Will You Forgive Me? No, I think it's really. Yeah, you know, you're right. You're, you're, you're right, Amon. Yeah. Can you ever forgive me? I don't know. Uh, now I gotta look. <laughs> Whatever. It <up>. Okay. <laughs> it looks um, good. It looks good though. It's really good. I've heard great things. Um, it's very funny. It's a small movie. <laughs> um, she got nominated, which is great. Um, and she definitely deserves it with the performance in this movie. Yeah. Um, it is. Can you ever forgive me? Okay. Um. Yeah, it, it just came out, and it was in very limited release, and now is. Uh, I think picking up a little bit of steam since she got nominated for it. Good. Um, it's a true story. It's about the author Lee Lee Israel, who um, was a best-selling New York Times author, but then fell on some rough times, and to sort of like get sort of like work her way through that moment, um, discovered that she had a talent for faking literary figures' letters. Um, so she created a bunch of like fake letters in the voices of like famous authors and was able to pawn them off and mm -hmm. actually make like a significant amount of money <clears throat> and like sort of financially buoy herself. Sure. Um, and then she like eventually got caught and uh, then wrote a book about it called Can You Ever Forgive Me? Uh, and that kind of like brought her back to prominence. There's um, an irony in that. Yeah, um, it's it's a very charming movie. Her situation is like very, um, like even though that she's like committing crimes, it's very like you. I I felt as an audience member that like I was like yeah like do those crimes. You need, like, <laughs> you need a yeah. you need a like. You need to eat, and, yeah. like, you know, live and like her first bread, then ethics. Yeah, and <laughs> um, you know, because she wanted to be an author and like a biographer, but like there just like wasn't like a market for mm -hmm. it. And they, it's actually contrasted explicitly with Tom Clancy. Interesting. Uh, <laughs> I, I guess they have like the same agent, and like Tom Clancy gets like a three million dollar 
forward for his like next book and she's like what the hell <laughs> and they're like well you you were writing a biography about like a, a like a silent film comedian or something like nobody <laughs> no nobody's going to pay you for this so yeah yeah so then kind of like out of spite and out of necessity like starts committing these crimes and um yeah she's very funny um she uh befriends um this guy who's um uh his, his name is jack hawk um he's, he's a gay man they are they live in the west village she, she was a lesbian and that connection to like the gay and queer community is like very important to the story where mm-hmm. they seem to like they d- developed this like friendship and eventual like working relationship that seemed where both these people were kind of like out of place in society sure. and were able to like find each other and and, and uh, you know where otherwise they would have died probably you know without mm-hmm. without it so it's it's nice it's a very charming movie it's very funny um, it's about like this little thing but like it like carries itself well and. It's very, it's it's great. Uh, Melissa McCarthy is very good in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, like you feel bad for her, but she's also funny and like very like charming, even as like this sort of like curmudgeon character. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Oh, yeah. Also, really small role with um, Jane Curtin, who's really a former <laughs> SNL actor, yeah. but she um, she plays McCarthy's uh, agent. Okay. And is only in like three scenes, but is very funny in all of them. Yeah, she's always funny in everything. <laughs> and is someone who is very straight up with the character. Like, you, like you're an alcoholic, and <laughs> like the projects that you're doing are not interesting. So, like, get a good that's why you're not getting any money. <laughs> and, yeah, and it's like rare yeah. to see that kind of moment given to like a character. Or right. Just like it's like, well, here, here it is. This is why you're not. <laughs> <laughs> this is the problem. Yeah, this is the problem. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've been meaning to see this. It's still screening. Um, I was at a sold-out showing. Oh, Where'd wow. you see it? Uh, at the Quad? At this theater on like 13th Street. Yeah, the Quad. It's Quad, yeah. yeah. Is that yeah. a new theater? I've never No, it's it actually a really old theater that reopened. So oh, okay. um, It's called the Quad because it was the first theater in New York to have multiple screens. It had oh, four of them. Yeah. <laughs> and it closed down 15, 20 years ago, I want to say, a while ago. And within the last couple of years, it has opened up again. In a it's location. very sleek. Theater because it's yeah, it's brand new, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it, the actual name quad and that that line is very yeah. old. it was a sold out showing kind of late on a Saturday, and hell yeah, I think people that's, are ex- that's great excited about it, yeah, yeah. I saw Burning there, I've seen a few movies there now, I saw Madeline's Battle in there, yeah, uh, yeah. That's a, that's a really nice theater, and they get they, like they get new releases, like independent releases like this, but they also have like a really good repertoire uh, programming as well, yeah, um, or repertory programming as well, um. So yeah, it's definitely definitely worth going to the quad. Place is great. Yeah, yeah. Um, I saw Cold War. Um, so Cold War is a Polish film. Um, the director, who has a very Polish name that I am going to attempt to pronounce now, uh, <laughs> Paweł Pawlikowski, was directed was nominated for a Best Directing um, Oscar. The last week or two weeks ago, whatever it was, which I think was the most surprising nomination of award season, at least for me. Um, I saw the movie a little bit before that. I'm still surprised by Bohemian Rhapsody. Well, yeah, but, but it, it already, had already won the Golden Globe. Like yeah, a lot of people had that on their radar. Like they did not expect yeah. black and white Polish movie 
you know, without any sympathetic characters in it <laughs> to, get any, to get any awards attention at all. All right. Well. Um, so the premise of the movie is that it takes place during the Cold War, uh, mostly, or at least it opens in Poland. Um, it's, a, it's a romance that takes place over the course of several years between um, a singer who tries out for like the national, you know, Soviet choir in, in Poland and the director of this choir. And they eventually move, they end up moving and crossing paths all across Europe throughout the next several years. Um, it's a movie called Cold War that doesn't feature any spy intrigue, doesn't feature any mention of nuclear weapons, doesn't feature any Americans <laughs> in it, right? Like, and the larger metaphor is, of course, that these two people are in a toxic relationship. They're bad for each other. They are constantly cheating on their various spouses and partners to be with one another, and they ultimately end up dying together in a mutually assured destruction in the same way that the United States and the Soviet Union was in a toxic relationship that's such that they required one another to keep going, but that that, that relationship was destructive to themselves and to the world around them. Um, and uh, it never explicitly states that metaphor because, again, there aren't any Americans in this movie. Um, but I think that is pretty clearly what's going on. Uh, it's shot in black and white um, and with a very boxy TV-like aspect ratio, right? Like you get a, a like it's not a widescreen format. Like you okay. get a narrow perspective on what's going on here. Um, and he uses that framing really well. Like there's this is a, a nice, a really nice movie to look at. Um, lots of you know pretty shots of like old Paris and Prague and wherever else they end up. Um, I found the movie really affecting. It doesn't like articulate its characters very explicitly. Um, it, it doesn't really explain why they're going from one place to another very much. Like it's very minimal in terms of its exposition, um, and it really relies pretty heavily on its cinematography and its framing and the non-verbal acting choices that these people are making as well as the larger metaphor at play with the with the cold war and mm -hmm. um the american soviet relationship i think it's good i had a friend who watched it recently who hated it so the <laughs> results may vary for, for uh um, other people but i think it's definitely worth seeing and at, at very least uh nice to look at it's 90 minutes long so not too much of an investment if you're apprehensive about you know um, foreign movies in black and white. Um, but I, I liked it a lot and a really, really strong performance from the lead actress who's named uh, Joanna Kulig. I hadn't seen her in anything else, but apparently she's done a bunch of other Polish things uh, before this. Uh, and I think that she's gotten the most attention following this movie, so hopefully she, we, we see more of her going forward. Uh, but the movie's called Cold War. I think it is still screening. Um, if it's not, I'm sure it'll end up on a streaming service uh, before long. Uh, but go check it out. It's, it's worthwhile. Yeah. Um, so our next selection is Crossman selection. Uh, so what are we watching? Um, I would like to watch the original Ocean's Eleven. Okay, great. The 1960 version. <laughs> yes. Featuring the Rat Pack. The Rat Pack. Okay. We haven't done any Rat like any Frank Sinatra. We've done a Brat Pack movie. We've done, which is drastically different. <laughs> yeah. A Rat Pack. Yeah, because that's Dean Martin and uh, Frank Sinatra and uh, Sammy, Davis. Sammy Davis Jr. Yeah, this and is a great a movie. A few other. Yeah, characters. those yeah. are the big ones. Yeah. Um, yeah, good pick. I, I, I love this stuff. I, I've seen a lot of these ones, and they're always good. Yeah. yeah. So thanks for listening, nice. everybody. Um, if you like the show, please share it. Uh, we are on Twitter at MCHS Podcast. We are on Facebook um, under Movie Charles Hasn't Seen. Um, any comments, any reviews, any shares make a really big difference. And join us next week for The Old Ocean's Eleven. <laughs>